I'd like to welcome you to the first ever uh, DEI podcast for Davis and Elkins College. Um, today with me, I have the director of the Naylor Learning Center and our Disability Services Office, um, Derek Fincham. Uh, Derek's going to answer a few questions as we think about this month, which was uh, Disability Awareness Month. And um, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to try to answer some questions that have been out there um, for those who maybe are not familiar with disability services here on campus, uh, as well as provide some other information and insight that students might be able to use as well. Sure. Thanks, Chris, for having me. This is great. Super. Thank you for being here. Um, so the first question, just tell us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you end up in your current position? And um, tell us a little bit about your knowledge on the topic. Sure. You know, it's interesting when you think about my knowledge acquisition, right? It really begins at birth. As an individual with a disability, with a visual impairment, uh, I started out, you know, in elementary school in first grade, in 1990 with the passing of the ADA and even though I would have been accommodated under IDEA and and 504 uh, the ADA really put in place a emphasis on accommodation in the K-12 setting and then particularly ramped it up in the uh, the college setting uh, and you know after I was born with a visual impairment my mother was finishing a master's in reading and she actually dropped out of that program and got her master's in visual education uh, and working with visual impairments, and so she could advocate for me, and so I learned a lot from her about looking at what is to be provided and then how to broker that in a uh, respectful manner, right, in a productive manner, uh, particularly in the time when things were a little bit new and different. Uh, we're kind of seeing that now in higher ed as we have the post-COVID generation um, that have their own set of unique challenges. Uh, I actually went to college to become a, a minister, a Methodist minister, and it's really funny. I was talking to my class the other day about Eric Erickson's stages in personality development. And when you look at that adolescent now, of course, as we're all seeing this latent adolescent period uh, between puberty and about 25, I entered that phase, uh, you know, looking at identity versus, uh, versus confusion with the idea that I was going to be a minister. And I came out of that phase with a job working in higher ed with students with disabilities, right? So I I talk to them about how, as they go through that psychosocial crises, right, they're going to they're gonna change, they're going to evolve in their, their college experience. Uh, how that happened is I had a very brave disability services counselor, who later on became my first boss, who looked me in the, the eyes in my fall semester of my senior year and said, I don't think you should be a minister, which is a pretty bold thing to say to someone, right, uh, after they've spent four years of their life preparing for, <laughs> for, for this, this career. Uh, and maybe it was divine intervention. Maybe it was just her personality, which I appreciate today, and she's still a mentor to me. Uh, but from that conversation, that one conversation, the course of my life in my 16-year work career uh, evolved. So I went and met Bob Marinelli, who was uh, in the Rehabilitation Counseling Program at WVU, uh, applied and was accepted into the program, uh, never having a psychology class, which I, I joke with my Psych 101 students that the first and only psychology class I had before grad school was Psych 101, which luckily prepared me enough, I guess, to make it through. Uh, and so as I was going through my graduate program, uh, I took a position in, in the Display Services Office at WVU for my practicum and internship, and then that rolled right into full-time employment. Uh, and uh, while at WVU, what's really prepared me for the position here as a director is 
I saw a need. Our students were leaving uh, in that first, second semester of their freshman year because they weren't getting two crucial things. It wasn't they weren't getting their accommodations, right? That, by and large, uh, was being provided. It looks much different in a large university than it does here, and we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But what they needed was one-on-one -on -one academic coaching, academic support, and tutoring, uh, which were not being provided. So I started uh, at WVU what was called the Mountaineer Academic Program. Now it's called the MindFit Program. And uh, that, that background, that experience, doing the research and development and, and pedagogical exploration for that program, uh, I think really helped me as I transitioned from, from WVU to working at D&E &E and support learning program and academic uh, success, and then now as, as becoming the director. Uh, so a lot of it's life experience. Uh, I know what it feels like to be that student who needs extra time, who needs note-taking assistance. A lot of it is just uh, evolving my education and my background to fit higher ed. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of how I ended up here. Super. So you kind of touched on this, but tell us a little bit more about your role, um, your current role as the director of the Naylor Learning Center. Sure. You know, what, what's great about the Naylor Center, and I, and I tell this to every prospective family I meet with, regardless if they're coming to talk about academic support or display services or support learning program, we, we are a, a complete and holistic center, right? Uh, 65 to 70% of our students are going to walk through the doors here uh, in a given semester. And, uh, and because of that, right, and we're going to talk about stigma in a, in a little bit, but because of that, a lot of the stigma or, or, or feelings of, uh, of difference that these students with disabilities may have had in high school goes away because students aren't, they don't know if they're coming here for a makeup test or for accommodations on a test. They don't know if they're coming here for study hall because they're an athlete or because they're uh, at academic risk or a student support learning program. They don't know if they're meeting with me because of a disability or because yeah, student success sent them down to me. Uh, and so by being a comprehensive program, um, I, I kind of get to have interaction with all of the students in my role as the director. I get to uh, oversee a, a wonderful group of of team members here uh, who have varying skills and talents and, and abilities uh, who work very hard for our students uh, and so I, I look at my I, I look at what I'm doing now as being a combination of all of my background experience uh, put into one centralized place which is which has been really rewarding to me super <clears throat> so I'm assuming that many of us have heard of the term disability services or may be familiar with the Office of Disability Services. But for those working on campus who may not be extremely familiar with disability services offices on a college campus, um, can you kind of give us maybe a little bit of a definition or tell us what the, um, an Office of Disability Services on a college campus would encompass? Sure. So obviously every college could be a little different, and I think we'll talk, we'll get, we'll get around to some things about what makes us special here, right? Which I, I truly think we're a blessed and special campus, the way we work with our students with disabilities. But by and large, all offices of display services nationwide have to comply with ensuring that students are accommodated under sections 504 and 508 of the National Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And, and that, that requirement means that we're going to ensure that students are getting their legal accommodations based on documentation, right, um, in the classroom. On top of that, of course, we also have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act and the amendments that go along with that. Uh, and that, 
oftentimes we look at that as more of the structural uh, and the uh, physical space, right? 504 is the academic learning and inclusion, inclusive space, and then 508 is our media and communication accessibility. Uh, and so students can come in and really qualify under one or all of those areas, depending on their, their documented disability. Disability Services Office run in a general pattern. We're going to look at later on at, at, at those, it's what we call the five W's of Disability Services. And uh, that pattern is a student will apply. They have to self-identify. Once they self-identify, um, they will complete a form of application of some kind uh, and submit documentation. The documentation will be reviewed by a qualified professional and then a legal accommodations will be determined and then administered in, uh, in whatever the campus format might be. Uh, might be a paper for, format like we're currently using here at DE, might be electronic, uh, it might be um, something that is just verbally brokered, right? It's not normal, but it, it does happen on some smaller campuses, uh, smaller than us. Uh, and so once that, that steps are, are, are implemented, right, the, the obligation for providing those accommodations is a, is a dual role between disability services and the faculty uh, or the residential life staff or um, the dining staff or whoever that accommodation may uh, include. Uh, and so there's a lot of brokering or communication between the parties that are involved. One central tendency, uh, the majority of the time with disability services, is that the faculty member is not going to know why they're accommodating the student. So on an accommodation letter, uh, it's going to say some identifier for the student, but it's not going to say um, John Smith is an individual with autism or John Smith is an individual with ADHD or a visual impairment. And so when we look at the accommodations and the accommodations that go with a lot of our disabilities or a variety of disabilities, uh, it, it fits multiple diagnoses. Um, things for visual impairments are going to be very similar um, in a lot of ways to things for ADHD or for a learning disability or for a mental health uh, concern. Uh, yeah, there's going to be some things that might give away if it requires an interpreter or transcriber or uh, large print or things like that. that they're probably going to pretty well cue you in. But what we also know uh, in Office of Display Services around the country is that students who tend to have visual impairments or hearing impairments are going to be much more vocal self-advocates, right? Because those are looked at as, um, as what we traditionally believe is a disability, right? And we're going to talk about stigma in a little bit, but uh, those, those groups tend to be more vocal about their individual disability. So I do want to emphasize that, I, that really the faculty don't have a right to ask uh, about the student's disability or what their disability is. Um, they could ask me about their limitations as the director here or on any college campus. They can talk to the service provider about limitations, but uh, it's in the student's right uh, to confidentiality to not have that uh, disability disclosed. I'm going to ask you to repeat the last part of what you just said. And the reason that I'm asking you to repeat the last part of what you just said is because I think that for newer professionals, um, professionals that maybe are taking on their first uh, leadership or management role, um, a lot of times they don't know that that piece of the Disabilities Act. So can you can you repeat yourself about the student's right to disclose and and then our, um, as professionals, our responsibility to 
um, not force a student to disclose and to maintain confidentiality. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and that disclosure piece, that is the self-advocacy piece that each student has the right to. Uh, as an Office of Disability Services, I'm never going to write down or list on an accommodation letter a student's disability. Uh, it does not, however, preclude that student from telling the faculty, hey, I'm an individual with autism, or I'm an individual who has a learning disability, or uh, I'm an individual with anxiety. Uh, but from the disclosure standpoint, that's on the student's right, not, uh, not our right uh, within disability services. Now, I will say, in a caveat to that, that there are occasions or times where um, a disability is so visible uh, or so well understood, right, that I think the disclosure is made for itself. Uh, but the, the rule of confidentiality is that as an, as an institution, we focus on the limitations and the accommodations for those limitations and not on the diagnoses, right? The Americans with Disabilities Act amendments under President um, Barack Obama really firmed that up, really firmed up the past history of peace, and we'll talk about how that applies really to D&E here in a minute, uh, as what carries the day on accommodations, right? We're not worried about necessarily if that diagnosis is um, being passed along to the, the end user, if you will, the faculty member or the, the staff member. Uh, what we're focusing on is ensuring that there are accommodations that go along with that uh, past history or known diagnoses are, are being provided by the institution in a confidential manner. Super. Um, so next question, what are some misconceptions or myths, even stigmas about disability services um, which need to be addressed? Sure. Well, I think that you know, one of the biggest myths is that disability services is for students with learning differences or disabilities only, right? Or physical disabilities only. Uh, D&E, that, that is in some cases very accurate, but also in the modern post-COVID world becoming more and more inaccurate every day. Uh, we have on campus currently, as of this morning, 113 students who are receiving disability services here at D&E makes them uh, one of the, if not the um, largest one uh, sector demographic uh, of, of students uh, that we have here, right, after we take out athletes, uh, di demographic there. Uh, and so one of the biggest myths is that those students are all coming because they have learning differences. They have ADHD, they have autism, they have a learning disability, they have uh, visual impairment, um, they have a physical impairment. But the largest growing group or comorbidic group is mental health concerns. Um, we're seeing more on college campuses today than ever before. Students coming in and, and seeking support for anxiety, for depression, for bipolar disorder. Uh, and a lot of that goes with our, our work, uh, and I think COVID uh, uh, really expedited this, of destigmatizing mental health, right? Um, when I began, about 17 years ago in my internship, or, and I, my role was to start tracking demographics at, at WVU when I was there. The, the, the smallest population we would have on campus would be individuals with visual impairments and then hearing impairments, and then the third was mental health concerns. Um, today, if we look at that 113, 112 students, um, if not a singular diagnosis, or when we had comorbidic diagnosis of mental health concerns, about 70 to 80% of those students have some sort of uh, area of concern around mental health. 
Uh, and so we, we have to get out of the mindset that when a student provides an accommodation letter that they, that they have some sort of learning difference that is directly associated with cognition, right? Um, uh, we also have to get out of the mindset that when a student provides an accommodation letter that that student is going to struggle, right? Or is going to uh, not uh, succeed as, at the same rate as someone else. Uh, disability services in the last uh, five, six years has produced a valedictorian and a salutatorian. In the last 15 years, we've had uh, uh, two valedictorians and two salutatorians. Uh, and so, you know, the majority of our students, when we look at dem the GPA demographic, uh, when we take the you know, cohort demographics, actually have higher GPAs than institutional average. Uh, and so these are students who are performing at a high level, um, but they need a reasonable accommodation to ensure that their abilities are being what's actually assessed, what's actually being graded. Um, so that's one of the areas uh, or stigmas that we have and myths we have about disability services. Uh, the best way to address that, right, is to, to look at that accommodation letter as this is what that student needs for my class to, uh, to show their ability, to show their, their knowledge. Um, and that, that is not giving them an advantage, that is just giving them an equalizer, uh, and that's just giving them a, a place to help um, uh, show that, that uh, ability. Uh, I, I don't think that there's any accommodation that I have ever provided where I have said that's going to give a student an undue advantage, uh, and I think that's important. That's where the professional side of what we do as disability service providers um, has to be trusted by the faculty. Right, and, they, and has to be looked at by the faculty as uh, this isn't just a, um, a stamp on a paper and we, we pass it along, right? We, we analyze, we think about, we talk about with the student their needs, their limitations, um, their strengths. I focus on strengths as much as I do limitations when determining what is a reasonable and appropriate accommodation. You know, that's a, it's the last portion of what you talked about, I think is also somewhat important. Um, you guys invest your time and energy in coming or looking at the disability and coming up with an accommodation. But do you diagnose here in disability services? Well, that's a great question, Chris. Uh, it, we don't. And, and we don't because, uh, and, and going back to what disability services office do, uh, it would be unethical, right, for us to run a diagnostic center out of disability services. Uh, because it could be perceived as um, not creating clientele. That's not where I want to say that. But <laughs> no, but yeah, but but that we're you know that we're 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 stacking the deck, if you will. Uh, so all diagnoses that we we work with uh, come from an outside provider. Now I will say, uh, within the institution, um, Community Care West Virginia, who's affiliated but not officially affiliated with with DE, uh, can provide diagnoses. Our athletic training staff on injury uh, can provide diagnos diagnostic support for a limitation um, for uh, temporary accommodations. However, our athletic training staff, you know, are not going to be providing diagnoses or, or documentation for a ongoing disability. You know, when we're looking at concussion or a leg injury or an arm injury or um, uh, injuries to the abdomen. You know they are they are the professionals. They they have every right and ability to provide me with the documentation I need for uh, those temporary accommodations, um, lasting six months or less. Um, when we look at the long-term diagnostic criteria, 
Uh, we are we're going to be working with medical professionals. Um, we're going to be working with psychologists or psychiatrists. We're going to be working with licensed professional counselors and therapists. Uh, we're going to be working with nurse practitioners, um, physicians assistants. Um, you know, we. This is an interesting evolution. Um, I tell tell people that. 16 years ago, it was a very finite structure. If you came in with um, a diagnosis of ADHD, that, diagno that diagnostic uh, information could not come from a medical doctor. It had to come from a, a psychologist and had to be psychoeducational testing. Um, you know, and, and if you came in with a medical disability, it had to be a specialist versus a general practitioner, right? Uh, luckily, again, as we have moved past some of those um, past... Uh, expectations and as we move towards the Americans with Disabilities Act and its amendments, it's really, it's really liberated um, some of that process for the student and for the professional. Right now, obviously, I still exercise discretion on documentation. I'm not, you know, again, we're not rubber stamping anything, uh, but it does make for an easier process for our students. Uh, it used to be that if you came in with a visual impairment, you had one set of documentation, and if you also had um, IBS, you'd have another set of documentation, and if you also had a learning disability, you'd have another set of documentation, and then we'd say, okay, bring us all this information, right, from these three different professionals. Uh, we, don't, we don't do that anymore. We have a unified approach to documentation. We have documentation standards here at, Dis at d and &E, uh, through our documentation criteria. Um, that documentation criteria clearly says what we want to have provided, but it also has a caveat for what might be provided, right? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to our five W's here in, in, in our, our future questions. Super. Um, so disabilities can be unique to the individual, some visual and non-visual. With that in mind, addressing some of the stigmas and misconception that you identify, where would you like to see institutions provide more engagement and utilization of resources within disability services? Well, I think that one, one step we're already taking uh, and that faculty have uh, the, the ability and staff have the ability to utilize is our student success link, right? Uh, one crucial part is that anytime we are interacting in an academic concern or a uh, student behavior concern, that that goes through student success first. Right, we that needs to be triaged through student success link, through either an alert or through one of the um, the uh, uh, course feedback forms, uh, because we are a team, right? Um, Angie and Carrie and and Chanda and I work very closely together every day uh, on those concerns, and by triaging them through the student success link, you can identify if you think a student might have a disability. Um, if you are have a student in your class who you see. Um, appears to be having trouble with, with, with reading or with spelling or with just notice a visual issue maybe um, and re getting close to papers to read or uh, doesn't seem to be picking up on what they're hearing, right? Don't be afraid to go on Student Success Link and do an alert form and, and indicate that. That's one of our indicators uh, on there and then that will, that will come to me and then I will triage that with the student. Uh, so that's one area, right, that we can, we can really amp up um, because a lot of times that identification can come from the faculty um, before the student may even realize or feel comfortable coming to talk to us, right? And, I, and the other thing that can be done there is in that process, talk to the student. 
uh, ask the student, you know, hey, I, I don't know if you've had any support in the past, if you've ever had any extra time, but we have, you know, great support down the Naylor Center. You don't even have to mention disability services, right? Um, and, you know, go down there and, and talk to Derek and, and see what, you know, you can work out. Um, so refer, refer, refer. Uh, second side of that, as you were saying, with the Sigma pieces, in the accommodation letter says uh, for faculty is if you aren't sure what you could be doing, um, reach out to, to talk to me. Now, I am very fortunate to say that I have a great working relationship with the faculty at DE, and that uh, the faculty reach out to me with questions and concerns. Uh, but for our newer faculty, for adjunct faculty, you know, don't be afraid to do that, right? I'm not going to tell you necessarily. Well, I'm not going to tell you what the student's diagnosis uh, diagnosis is, but I am going to be able to say, well, you know, this is what I think is probably why they're doing X or how they might be looking at Y. Uh, and, and we can brainstorm and talk that through. Um, so communicating in that way has been uh, been great. It's been it's a, it's a wonderful process. It's a constructive process. Um, I get uh, sometimes, are you working with so-and-so? And I may not say yes, but I may say, well, maybe they need to reach out to me, right? Um, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's another avenue of communication that can help, is if you see something, you know, uh, reach out to me. But that visual and non-visual, um, you know, the majority of our students at d &E are going to have non-visual disabilities, particularly when it comes to physical disabilities. Uh, we are blessed to be a college in the heart of Appalachia that's a historic college, uh, that falls under a historic exemption for our academic buildings, our historic academic buildings, uh, that's nestled squarely on hills. Uh, and so we're going to see, of course, a limited uh, amount of individuals who feel comfortable with mobility, significant mobility impairments being at D&E. Um, we also are a college that, that, is, it, that has not traditionally attracted a lot of students with hearing impairments or visual impairments. Not that we don't uh, fully welcome that. It's just a you know it's not been a, a group of students who tend to to look towards DE. Uh, and so most, if not all, of the students you're going to be interacting with are going to have uh, you know non-visible disabilities. Okay. Um, so considering the presidential initiative on diversity, equity, and inclusion here at DE. Um, and the and more specific, um, working to be inclusive, um, Hiren Pollen, uh, most notable for um, most notable for the work done with the military, mm -hmm. uh, developed a faculty guide to the five W's of college disability services. Can you provide an overview of these five W's, and why is this important? Um, to the, uh, why is this important to all levels, uh, faculty, staff, um, and even leadership here at DNE? Sure, and and I want to, and, and that's exactly how we, you know, I want to approach it, Chris. Let's look at it from DNE's perspective. We we are a college that is fully supportive uh, and engaged in supporting our students with disabilities. You know, from President Wood and Dr. Phillips and, and uh, Executive Vice President Thomas. Everyone supports the mission of supporting students with disabilities here at DNE, and because we have a history, a centralized history of uh, providing accommodations 
and not only providing accommodations, but going beyond those accommodations through our supported learning program, uh, we fulfill these five W's in a very centralized way through the Naylor Learning Center. Um, but starting at, you know, the first W that, that, that is brought up is who, right? Who is able to use disability services? And at DNE, that is any student who can provide uh, reasonable documentation of a disability or a past history of a disability um, that will allow for legal accommodations. That past history piece is what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act and its amendments, it allows for, as, as regarded as, right, the statement that's always been a part of the, the ADA to really have much more emphasis. And in a post-pandemic world, uh, what we are seeing is as students are coming out of high school, they are not bringing with them the volumes of documentation uh, around their past IEP or 504 plans. Uh, it was common practice a decade ago for a student in their 11th or 12th grade year to be reassessed for a learning disability and have a full battery that was an adult-normed battery, what we call an adult-normed battery, you know, battery, something that's 16 and a half years or older. Uh, we don't see that now. Schools just simply aren't doing it. It, it doesn't happen. Um, when we look at uh, diagnoses of uh, students with ADHD and the support they're getting, you know, it is now much more related to medical diagnostic criteria and 504 plans in high school than it was a decade ago. And so when we look at who is able to use disability services at DE, we have those documentation criteria we talked about. Um, that has a caveat at the bottom that says, if it is not fully met, then we will use the documentation provided. As a private liberal arts college, we have some discretion in that, uh, which is also liberating, right? We can support our students in a better way uh, because we are not making them jump through 10 hoops um, to get there, right? Again, I am not saying that we are supporting any student of those 112 that do not have documentation, that do not validate why these accommodations are being provided. What I am saying is, instead of making them wait months, or in cases sometimes, as I saw in the past, uh, at, at WVU, years to get everything in place they needed, we are able to move quicker. Uh, and so we will look at who is eligible based on that past documentation and where we can start, right? We also provide the caveat to that, I provide the caveat, to that, that just because they're receiving an accommodation at d &E with the documentation they provided does not mean that when they go on to graduate school or apply for the GRE or the MAT or the MCAT, that that documentation will stand up, right? We may have to revisit documentation criteria for those institutions, those tests, to get those accommodations for them. Uh, because every institution has their own discretion on their documentation criteria. So for d &E, it's a little bit uh, easier because we're a one-person shop and making that decision. Um, and uh, with guidance, of course, and there is times where I'll seek guidance out from our 504 coordinator, Mary Jo DeJoyce, uh, and Amy Kittle, our Title IX and Compliance uh, Officer, uh, for help with that, right, to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, but it, it is nice being in a smaller institution to have that ability to help students get services quicker. So what are disability services, that second W uh, in college? Um, disability services in college are a, a place where students can receive reasonable accommodation and 
uh, in the areas of living, in the areas of academics, um, in the areas of dining services traditionally. At DE, that is that is a collaborative effort. Um, although I handle the academic accommodations uh, for the classroom, um, Corey and Kate and I work together on our ESA process. Students have to be qualified with disability services to have an emotional support animal in the dorm. Students have to be qualified with disability services to have a single room for disabilities in the dorm. But that is a, a, a cross-departmental process. They have to they work through the criteria within housing. Um, for the emotional support animal or for the single room um, in collaboration with Disability Services. In dining services, um, Scotty Marshall handles the dietary accommodations, right? So I act as maybe um, a liaison or a referral source, but uh, it is um, handled within the dining services to ensure that our students with celiac uh, issues or um, uh, dairy issues or other dietary issues are receiving that accommodation here at DNE. Um, and so where can a student contact uh, connect with disability services? Well, at DNE, it's me, right? Uh, and that, again, can be a referral through student success link by you, the faculty or staff member. Uh, that can be a student just sending me an email um, or giving me a call. It can be a student clicking a link to the online application found under the educational support section of our website. Um, but once that's initiated, um, the hub, all decisions related to disability services are the, the purview of the director of the Naylor Learning Center and have been um, uh, really since the inception of the support. Um, and so, you know, that's another nice thing, right, um, with, with being a smaller institution is you have a go-to place. When should students register with disability services? Uh, the fourth W. That is a question of choice. Uh, I tell incoming prospective students, and I meet with prospective students uh, almost daily, that being proactive is much easier than reactive, right? Getting accommodations put into place, even if you're choosing not to fully use those accommodations um, for every class or for every exam, um, is the better approach. So if a student's coming in as a freshman, um, they can begin the application process with disability services at any point in the application process with D&E. It has no bearing at all on their admissions to D&E. Everything they provide to me is held separate from their academic record uh, and held separate from their admissions uh, record. So if a student wants to begin co-requisitely applying to D&E and applying for disability services or supported learning program, um, they can do that, and that is kept um, completely separate and void of their admissions criteria and, and being admitted to the college. Uh, once admitted to the college, though, uh, that, that is when an incoming student should definitely, if they have not already begun that process, choose to do that. Again, so things are in place. Even if they choose not to use it right away, it's already there and ready to go. However, a student has every right to identify at any point in time uh, their need for an accommodation. That can be the second week of class or that can be the 14th week of class. And uh, per our accommodation process, once an accommodation letter is generated and provided to the faculty member, they have one week to implement those accommodations. Now again, we're very fortunate because we have the Naylor Learning Center. We have our outstanding office and testing manager, Hannah McCauley, who coordinates our testing resources and our note-taking, that that process is really effortless for the faculty. 
and I usually tell students they're not going to make you hold off a week, uh, but you all might. Uh, but that does give a little, a little lead way for students who come in later in the semester wanting accommodations. Students may decide to register in their freshman year. Or they may decide to register their last semester of their senior year. And I've had that happen uh, multiple times. And that, again, is in their, their rights and their purview. Um, students may not get a diagnosis until they're into their education, particularly when we look at mental health, until um, they're several years into their, their college career. So at any point in time, a student can register uh, with disability services, and they should register as soon as they know that they might be eligible for that support. The last W is why might a student um, use disability services? Well, the, the biggest reason is, one, it, it provides documentation that they are qualified for that support when they need it, all right? Um, they should use disability services to their fullest ability to help show their their academic and their uh, social and their independent skills uh, by utilizing the reasonable accommodations or support that it might provide. Um, they should use it because it gives them a place to go where they know that there are professionals who understand what they may be or are most likely experiencing as a, a person with a disability. It's, it's not uncommon, right? It's not a surprise that a lot of professionals who work in disability services around the country have disabilities themselves, right? Uh, it just, it, 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 it makes sense. Uh, and so oftentimes those offices can be safe havens for those students. And at D&E, uh, I would say why should a student use disability services? Because we are a community, right? We, we work so closely together that the support they need can be put into place Effort, almost effortlessly, uh, at least for the student. Uh, it can be put in a place where it can make a difference between a faculty member going, huh, that makes sense now, right? And being able to support that student better. Uh, and it can prepare them for that next step when they get ready to go into the workforce. Uh, and having a history of being accommodated into college is a very important step uh, when working, looking for accommodations in the workforce. Um, one thing that I, I want to mention, and I didn't really mention it earlier, is that we are unique in D&E that we have both disability services and supported learning program. And, and so as we're talking today, we're really talking about disability services. Um, of that 112 students that we talked about, uh, 56 of those students use disability services um, for a, a disability alone. Um, uh, 41 of those students, uh, 41 of these students are in the supported learning program. Um, so we actually have a majority of students who, uh, who actually are not in disability service, or are not in the supported learning program using disability services. So one of the myths I think that, that we've had here at DE, or one of the ideas here at DE, is that disability services and supported learning program are, are really the same thing, and they are, they are not. They are not the same thing at all. Uh, a student first qualifies for disability services, first qualifies for accommodations, goes through these five W's, right? Uh, and then can choose to use that supplemental support support learning program because at any point in time, they can leave the support learning program and still have the same accommodations that faculty are seeing in the classroom, uh, regardless of if they're in the support learning program or not, right? So, so we do have to always remember that, you know, first and foremost, we wanna talk about disability services, and then students can choose the support learning program. And yes, we're very fortunate to have that program. We are 
uh, rank within the top 25 in almost every national poll uh, for these uh, programs. Um, we are ranked exceptionally high and fifth in the nation for small colleges for students with ADHD. Um, and so uh, we are very lucky at d &E, uh, for the outstanding support we have, and that is supported by the faculty and the staff uh, in the college outside of the Naylor Center as much as it is in the work that we do here in the Naylor Center. So I know that went off the topic there a little bit on these five W's, Chris, but... No, no, I think that was very pertinent information, so really appreciate that. Um, you know, it, with it being the conclusion of National Disability Employment Awareness Month, and me being the career services director, um, you know I'm going to ask a question about disclosure sure. and, and, and candidates. And this question is probably more so, for, um, more so for the students than it is for the faculty and staff. But as a job seeker, how can a candidate best start a dialogue about their disability um, and trying to find out what services would be provided to support them? Um, as well as, um, how does a student determine if an employer is going to be a good fit for them? Sure. Uh, that is a very good question. And that, and that's something where I, I actually, um, I think in a very short amount of time as a country, right, we have made great strides in understanding and, and encouraging employment for students with disabilities, um, or individuals with disabilities. Um, the pandemic definitely helps right because when we went to virtual interviews you couldn't tell if an, an applicant was in a wheelchair i was a wheelchair user if the applicant maybe had a visual impairment or if the applicant had a physical disability or a hearing disability or a learning disability like you may have in the interpersonal um, interview with disclosure it, it is at the discretion of the individual uh, under the law the individual does not have to disclose a disability until after an offer has been made as long as they can meet, with or without reasonable accommodations, the, uh, the specific job duties uh, and functions that are within the job description or posting. And so what I, I say there as important piece, if an individual cannot drive, right, myself being an individual who does not have the ability to drive, and the job requires 75% um, travel, independent travel, and a valid driver's license and DNV background check. It, it most likely would not be a reasonable accommodation for that employee to then ask for a driver, right? Um, not that it's always not possible, but in general, as a applicant, right, the applicant should really take that into consideration, uh, especially when thinking about, is this going to be a good fit for me, this company a good fit for me, right? Because if going in from that offer, they're already asking for a, a very substantial and, and most likely an unreasonable accommodation, uh, that, that probably is not going to be the best fit for them. So I think that it's in the, the responsibility of the individual to look at that job description to say, okay, I can meet this job, these job requirements and duties and physical and um, uh, cognitive re uh, requirements with some amount of reasonable accommodation. That might be a flexible schedule. Uh, that might be uh, a screen reader. That might be um, uh, specific and written directions at all times. These are things that are not outside of the ability of a, su a normal supervisory relationship. 
Uh, and so in that case, the individual would not need to think about disclosure until after the offer is made. In that first example of travel, the applicant may still apply for the job, right? The individual still might say, hey, I really do want this job. It's, it's right in my wheelhouse. Uh, and that, that's an individual who may want to disclose before application, right? Or during the app interview process. Uh, and, and disclose in a way that says, I understand that this may not be able to be met, right? Uh, because you have to be honest. You have to have an honest dialogue there. What we're seeing, uh, what I'm seeing more and more as I look at job postings, and gosh, anybody that has LinkedIn, they send them to you every three days, even though we're not looking for jobs, uh, <laughs> is that there will oftentimes be, if you're an individual who needs a reasonable accommodation, please contact X, right? Maybe the Director of Human Resources, maybe it, for the interview process, right? That's what it'll say. And and that is a good um, a good step in the right direction for individuals because that could be the person where they could ask that question, right? Like, you know, I, I can't do independent travel, but I would be willing to provide my own personal assistant to drive me. Would I still be able to apply for this position? Or do I have to use a company car, et cetera? Um, so we're seeing that as a good stride uh, in the right direction towards allowing for questions about disclosure or questions about accommodations within that company to get a feel, again, for is that company going to be the right fit? Uh, for a a, a non-job decision maker, right? They're not going to have a person in that role who then is directly going to go back and make the decision if you're hired or not. That would be very much illegal. Um, and so that's a great step in the right direction. As we look here at D&E, at candidates, be it uh, staff or faculty, uh, I think that one of the important things is that we, um, we are open to uh, any applicant, um, regardless of what we may believe, think, or, or assert uh, until, you know, point making we the right decision for the best applicant. And then if that applicant discloses a disability, then that, that, uh, that goes, you know, to, to Jane and to um, Mary Jo to make those appropriate accommodations for that, that hire. Um, but I think that we have to be open um, and not assume or not make assumptions. Um, you know, uh, one of the biggest areas that we typically make assumptions on might be something like, um, you know, a student may be on the, or an individual might be on the autism spectrum. Um, you know, that, that, that could be that that person just happens to be nervous and communicating a little different. Um, or they may be on the spectrum, but either way, right, we need to be open to that applicant and then know that the accommodation might be able to be made after, the accommodation could be made afterwards. Um, so it's a two-way street. I think it's a two-way street in that disclosure is on the individual, uh, but the institution needs to be open and willing um, to accommodate and have policies in place uh, to provide that, which of course we do here at DE. and um, And to look at, uh, from the, uh, the culture of the institution, be it a large business or a small business, um, trying to be as inclusive as I can. One in five individuals in America have a disability, uh, either seen or unseen, which means that there are many of us on this campus who have not disclosed a disability that have them that are working here at DE because we have not felt that there may need to be a, a reasonable accommodation made. Um, and that's okay, right? But if you are an individual, if you're one of those pe individuals who have, have already been hired here in DE, and you say to yourself, man, if I just had, right, that would make things so much easier, don't be afraid to ask that question. Don't be afraid to, to talk to Mary Jo. 
uh, and to Amy or to, to Jane uh, about that question, right? I had that conversation early in my employment here. If I had just had a screen reader, you know, Mary Ellen, that would be so helpful. And three days later, I had a screen reader, right? Um, the average reasonable accommodation costs $500 or less for an individual with a disability. Um, so, you know, when you look at that, uh, the cost of hiring that highly qualified applicant uh, versus the cost of that small, that small cost of reasonable accommodation makes that, that employee well worth it. Awesome. So uh, last question, and if you can answer this one uh, a little bit brief, but um, but really cover the Brevity content. Brevity is my problem. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, I am the son of a Church of Christ preacher, yeah, so uh, I, I completely get uh, brevity being a problem. That said, um, as we're talking to new professionals working at college campuses and um, as they work and support students, work with and support students, um, the question arises, what are some fears that students might have as it pertains to utilizing disability services? Can you speak to maybe some of those fears so that they don't um, come as something new to a, a new professional or someone working here at the college? Sure. Students, particularly students who have not had a past diagnosis, their fear is stigma, right? Their fear is that when they get that accommodation letter, that for that point on in their entire life, right, they're going to be looked at as that kid, that person. Uh, and the truth is, and I tell them this, my file cabinet is full of files of students who received accommodation here, and nowhere else in this institution is it ever noted that they received accommodations, right? And so as faculty, I think it's important, both new and old faculty, that when I'm talking to students about and encouraging students to use disability services, to let them know, look, this is totally separate from your academic record. This is totally separate from your, your student uh, life record. Um, this is a, a completely separate you know, entity uh, that can really help you, right? That can really give you what you need. Maybe it's that extra five minutes on a test, or maybe it's somebody else's notes that, um, that, that capture the things you were missing in class. But either way, uh, you know, it's not going to follow you for the rest of your life. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you for this uh, podcast and taking the time out to uh, answer some of these questions. As I see it, these are very important questions as we try to support our students here at Davis and Elkins College. Um, But more so as we contribute to the larger sense of humanity in the world, um, taking time out to make sure that we understand what some of the needs are, understand what services and resources are available, and understand how providing these things can positively impact a community are very important. So, Derek, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the interview. And um, if you have any other questions, um, faculty and staff, or even students, um, contact the Naylor Learning Center. Um, Derek, can you provide the phone number if they wanted to contact? So the easiest thing is just to contact me directly at 304 637 one four three five, uh, and that does roll to my cell phone. I tell people all that time, all the time. So feel free to call me in the evenings with questions. Uh, and of course, you can email me at Fincham F I N C H A M D at D E W V, and uh, I'm happy to get get a hold of you. Super. Thank you once again for your time, and hey, thank you for listening to this podcast. Something new that we're trying in the Presidential Initiative on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. But be looking for number two. Thank you. Thank you.